I'm Lindsay. And this is Kathy. From Kindergarten Kiosk, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. The opinions expressed are those of the individual hosts. Make sure you check out all the other great podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. And get ready because the learning begins in three, two, one. Hey, welcome back. Today, I got Elisa Cook with me, and she's been working in education for over 20 years. She's been everything from a classroom teacher to a K-5 principal, a high school principal, a parent, a teacher coach, and so much more. She currently is the chief learning delivery officer for the Learning Agency, which we'll talk about a little bit, as well as we're going to focus on her research with children on the Navajo Reservation. You're going to love this one. Lots to learn. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Elisa Cook has worked in education for over 20 years, including experience as a classroom teacher, researcher, curriculum specialist, special education director, K-5 principal, high school principal, parent and teacher coach, and college educator. Elisa has a master's degree in bilingual education and PhD studies in educational leadership from the University of Arizona. She currently is the chief learning delivery officer for the Learning Agency. Part consultancy, part communications group, part service provider, the Learning Agency has helps people and organizations harness the power of learning. Today, we are going to talk about her work on the Navajo Reservation as it connects with the science of learning and much more. By the way, in her free time, Elisa enjoys spending time on a ranch, sailing, and playing the ukulele. So say hi to everyone, Elisa. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Well, glad you're here. And before we go any further, let's start with what you do in your free time, because you said you like <laughs> hanging out on your ranch, sailing, and playing the ukulele. You know, what do you like best about it, hanging out on your ranch? And by the way, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure you can't hang out on the ranch and sail at the same time, can you? Or, or can you? No, <laughs> no, I... I, I can sail in ukulele at the same time, and I can hang out at the ranch and play ukulele at the same time, but the, the three things are uh, tough to do at the same time. But uh, we have a 50-acre ranch in southeastern Arizona. We have goats and pigs and chickens and dogs and, uh, and, a, and a cat. And uh, what I love hanging about there is the peace and quiet and serenity and the night skies. And actually, now that I think about that, that relates to my work on the Navajo Reservation, so remind me to tell you about that. Okay. Um, and then, um, you know, I'm actually right now sitting on my sailboat, and uh, just before this call, I was playing the ukulele. So um, those two things just seem to go hand in hand, sailing and playing the ukulele. Because, you know, ukuleles are small, and so you can fit them in, in tiny places. So it's uh, it all it, it all just works out. Excellent. Now, uh- I got to ask, so have you always played the ukulele? No, I just took it up within the last few months. I was looking for uh, a way to make music that I could travel with. And I used to have a guitar, but my, my little fingers just weren't adept at uh, making some of those crazy chords. So I wanted something a little bit smaller and something that I could transport. And ukulele just kind of popped into my uh, consciousness one day and there's a syndrome, it's uh, the, ac- the, the initials are UAS, and it's ukulele ac- acquisition syndrome. 
So once you get one, you have to get more than one. So I actually right now have four ukuleles, and nice. I just got one that's a banjo ukulele. So I'm looking forward to playing with that one. Excellent, excellent. So it, it becomes addictive, huh? Is, it, is that what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. Not so much for the people in the room, uh, but for the player, for sure. Nice, very nice. So right now, I'm, I, I don't know if I've ever heard Jimmy Buffett play a ukulele, but for some reason, I have Jimmy Buffett songs going through as you're sailing on a boat. So did you... Just... Absolutely. Lots of sailing songs out there. Um, just, you know, it's a, it's a whole heck of a lot of fun when, when you're out there and you're out on the ocean and someone's got the killer and you've got the ukulele. It's uh, it's the good life. Excellent. Excellent. So, well, you've had an awesome career in education. What'd you like most about working with kids? Oh gosh. Um, so many things. I think mostly learning from them, um, learning how to be a teacher, how to be um, a good adult in their lives, um, being open to how they learn being open to what they're interested in. I, I always felt like um, that they they would lead the instruction in a way um, that if I were open to it, they would just take us in, in a direction that was just um, so revealing and so interesting. Um, and I, and I, I really loved working with the quote-unquote difficult kids. I found them to be some of the most intelligent, bright kids I ever worked with. In fact, I remember when I was a high school principal, we would sit down with, with the students and look at their transcripts. And whenever I saw uh, a kid coming into our school with lots of D's and F's, I, I knew that those were probably my gifted kids <laughs> because they were bored out of their mind or they would misbehave in class. And and they did. They they more often than that turned out to be really amazing uh, kids. And you know, by showing them a little bit of respect, they return it tenfold. And and I always liked being able to offer that to them because many times they they didn't get that at home, or they didn't get that from other teachers or educators in their lives. They had been um, they had been told that they were stupid or bad kids. And I loved being able to connect with those those guys and letting them know that they're, no, no, they're, they're not bad. They're, they just need, they just need a little bit of TLC. So being kind and firm with them. Um, I just learned so much from them about how to be a good person. Honestly, it's not just about being a good teacher or an educator, just how to be a good person when you spend time with kids. That's so cool. Cause that, I know that's a big part of my memories working with kids is that you know the the whole part of just working with them is just it's just a part of the experience and I think it's a part that uh, technology and computers just can't take away um, can't ever replace that adult that, that human interaction I guess is where I'm going um, yeah I mean and, and we see it in research that the kids who tend to grow up to be successful adults um, they attribute it to having it can be in, just be one adult in that school that pays just a little bit extra attention to them. Um, and it just can change lives. It, it is, it, you know, it's a, it's a cliche that we can change lives as educators, but it's true. I, I think we can all think of an educator that's changed our lives and, and we can be that person for someone else. Oh, awesome. So awesome. So uh, let's, you, you kind of already touched on this, but I was going to ask you if you'd talk a little bit, at, you know, if you had some really, tr you know, treasured memory from uh, you at, as a principal when you were working um, in, in a school as a principal, shifting from the classroom to the, um, to being the principal, any, anything there that uh, just, you always want to remember? Oh yeah. I, I think one of my favorite 
just that, like I was just saying, just making connections with students. Um, but as a principal, you your scope is wider. You have more of a, a macro approach to what's going on in the school, right? So in the classroom, you're making connections with the, with the kids and with their parents. Um, as a principal, having the opportunity to make connections with the kids and their families and the teachers in the community and um, making sure that we were all working together um, so that the kids believed in themselves. Um, one of my favorite exercises that I would do with teachers and parents, and I encourage people to, to do this, even if it's just in their mind, and, and it's basically if we think of the kids in our, in our lives, in our schools, in our homes, and we think, what would we gift them? If I could hand them a gift of a personality trait that would ensure that they're successful in life. And so I would, I would take teachers through this exercise and I would write these things down. Like, what, 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 would, what could you give this student in order to succeed in life? And they would say things like confidence, um, being open-minded, having a, a love of learning, being curious, having a sense of humor, having resilience, and all these things that we think of when we think of people who are happy and successful and what success means, and that we could gift them these, these life skills. And, you know, never once, not once, I mean, I did this exercise dozens, maybe a hundred times, never once did I hear, well, you know, in order to be successful in my life, in life, my student really knows needs to know uh, how to uh, simplify a quadratic expression, or know what year did Caesar fall, or you know what year did the Great Depression start. You know, people get hung up on content versus what's really important. And of course, content is important, but having that ability to focus on real life skills and showing those kids and modeling. Um, to those kids and their families and the teachers and the school staff that we cared, that we wanted to do everything we could to help those kids succeed in life. And I think that's what I miss most about being principals, being able to make those types of connections and helping children and, and, and their parents and the teachers see that, that importance of um, that, what, what, what do we really want for our kids? You know, and, and, you know, when, when I worked in the school systems, they didn't value that, you know, the, the principal role became more about attendance and test scores and, you know, dollar signs. I, I didn't mind working 60 to 70 hours a week when it was spent connecting with the kids and their parents and in the community. But when I found myself spending 60 to 70 hours a week connecting with spreadsheets, I, I decided to focus my efforts differently, and so that's when I left the that kind of role in education. But I'll never ever forget those those connections and being able to help those kids see their value, see where they can achieve success through content areas, not because of content areas. If that makes sense. Oh, that makes perfect sense. That is so powerful, and I and I love the. Uh... The image because uh, being able to because uh, that is one of uh, it's also one of my most treasured uh, thoughts and moments uh, as as a principal is making those relationships like you said there's all kinds of different ways and the connections there and definitely not the connections with the spreadsheets 
Correct. Yeah, yeah, that gets old really quick. <laughs> yes. So in just a minute, we're going to talk about your work on the Navajo Reservation. And this came about through the DISCOVER projects. DISCOVER stands for Discovering Intellectual Strengths and Capabilities While Observing Varied Ethnic Responses. Could you explain DISCOVER? I will do my best. Um, <laughs> I first want to acknowledge a, a mentor of mine, Dr. June Maker, who works uh, out of the University of Arizona, or worked. I think she recently retired. Um, it's really her brainchild. She started this thought process uh, a few decades ago, and it's still active. Um, she's still doing work in uh, countries as varied as Saudi Arabia and Australia and throughout the United States. And what she did was, uh, along with her colleagues, she designed a, a really unique, hands-on, project-based assessment. So not a pen and paper assessment. And it was designed to identify students for gifted programs who, you know, they just wouldn't ordinarily show up on um, being considered for gifted programs. They either wouldn't show up because the assessment was culturally biased or they wouldn't show up because, you know, most most students who are uh, recommended for gifted programs, one of the things that... Uh, a lot of districts look at as teacher recommendations. Um, you know, who do you think we should look at for being gifted? And 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 I'm not um, wanting to disrespect teachers' opinions because I'm right in there with them, but usually the kids that we notice the most are the kids who behave well and follow directions and do their homework and, and do things on time. And very often those are the kids that get recommended for gifted programs. And that's not to say that they're not gifted. Many, many of them are, but a lot of them, kids that are gifted don't, don't look that way. They don't act that way. So she wanted to put together an assessment that would identify those kids, but also kids that wouldn't necessarily show up on a cultural, culturally relevant uh, written exam. So what she did is, um, develop a project-based thing where kids are actually making products. Um, but that, that dichotomy between the student population and the gifted population is what she was trying to fix. So, for example, in a school district that has 50% Hispanic population, maybe 10% of those gifted students in that uh, school would be identified as gifted. And that's a problem. Um, so she developed the assessment to help kind of even that playing field. And there's many examples of districts where the Discover assessment was implemented. And in just a year or two, the, the, it would equalize the representation. So your gifted programs should represent your general population. If you have 50% Hispanic students, your gifted program should have 50% Hispanic students or something close to it. So that's where that came from, and it, so it's culturally neutral, um, and it can be achieved through assessments like what uh, Dr. Maker developed. Cool. So, so thanks for explaining that. So, that, so now what I'd like to do is let's shift into um, with your work with teachers on the Navajo Reservation and, and throughout the Southwest uh, U.S. It, you worked with them on high standards and individualization for students of all abilities and backgrounds. How did your work with the Navajo begin, and what was what was the primary purpose? Well, it began with the Discover Project. So um, it was a, a grant-funded project by the Jacob Javits uh, grant funding. And um, 
what was so neat about it is we would go to different schools on the Navajo reservation. Once a year, we would do this and we would assess every single student in that school because the school district was, uh, and the different schools were committed to trying to find kids who needed some enhanced uh, instruction. But then my work started really after that, where we would do those assessments. And then the question always is, I mean, as a teacher, as a principal, you get these assessments, you, you get the test results, and you're like, okay, now what? <laughs> you know, now what, what do I do with this? How, how does this translate to work I can do in the classroom? How does this translate into programs that we can develop? Um, what, does, what does this mean? So that's where uh, my work kind of took from there. So I worked specifically with one school on the reservation, um, and I would go to that school at least one to two weeks a month, and uh, basically in residency, and I would help that, you know, help that process along of um, how do we take what we know now about this student and this student and, stu and this student and create activities in the classroom that um, will will facilitate maximum learning for all the students and also help the kids who are falling behind, help the kids who are, are going ahead, just kind of help design curriculum that would facilitate that learning. Um, it was all based on uh, Howard Gardner's multiple intelligence theory, which was, you know, came out and came really into um, public awareness, I guess, probably in the 90s. Um, and the assessment was based on some of those uh, intelligences that he defined, including spatial, um, oral linguistic, um, and um, some of the processing uh, techniques that he would talk about. So it was a really, really interesting assessment and a fascinating program because, you know, for example, the assessment um, when we test kids for uh, linguistic ability, for example, we want to see how kids can read and write, right? And so we give them a pencil and paper test to do that, um, to check comprehension, for example, um, or to check the ability for a student to write something. We have them write an essay. Well, in the program, we argued that, you know, an ability to compose a story and have a story engaging and interesting and informational, some students and some people are really good at doing that in writing. Others are better at it telling a story and doing it orally. That doesn't mean they, they don't have the linguistic skills. It just is that they have a harder time putting it on paper, but if you put them uh, in front of a microphone, they tell these amazing stories. So we would have the kids play with uh, toys just to kind of spark their imagination, and we would say, okay, now tell us a story. It can be about these toys or it can be about anything you want. And so in addition to the writing that they would do for us, they would tell us a story, and that was fascinating. Um, and so uh, that's what that information drew from. And so we could take that and, and tell teachers, you know, if you want to look at 
um, the linguistic skills of your kids, yeah, definitely look at the writing because we want to work on that. We want to work at getting your ideas on paper. That's a, that's definitely a life skill. Um, and also take a look at what kind of stories they can tell you and and see how you can develop their skills and talents that way. So that's a lot of the work that I was doing, um, things like that, how to bring that assessment into life, into the classroom, and help those students out. Excellent, excellent. That's so cool. What would you say was one of your greatest successes while pursuing your work with the children on the Navajo uh, Reservation? Great. I, You know, learning about the, the culture of the Navajo and how we could support and encourage um, those students and teachers on, on how to learn and learn from each other, um, I think one of my favorite moments was... I, I had many, many, many favorite moments during the assessment that I just talked about. I mean, you can imagine sitting there and listening to children tell you stories yes. and, and, and getting insight into, into that was always phenomenal. But, you know, so often kids, especially much more now than back then, kids are just tested to the eyeballs. And, you know, we tried really, really, really hard not to use the word test. You know, we would say, oh, we're going to do some activities. But, you know, kids are smarter than we are. They knew what was up. They knew that they were being tested. Right. And I remember there were kids who would come in and we would be sitting at a table. And um, there was always one or two kids that would start crying. Um, you know, it's really traumatic. You know, if anybody hasn't spent time in the classroom, they don't understand how traumatizing tests and assessments can be for some kids. And I mean, we test kids in kindergarten now. It's crazy. But I remember kids would come into our setting and at, at the setting, if you picture, you know, your classroom, and we would do it in the kids' classroom so they'd feel comfortable. And there'd be like five tables set up and there would be an adult at each table and, the, and four or five kids at each um, table. And inevitably, one or two of them would just start crying and sometimes crawl under the table because they were so upset they were having to take a test and they were so afraid of failing. They were used to failing, quote-unquote, failing tests. Um, and then working with them and getting them to relax and then seeing them engage and laugh and smile because they knew, they knew now that we knew that they had skills and, and smarts that hadn't been recognized or appreciated before. Like we were pulling something out that wasn't part of any, I mean, they would build things, for example. Um, and, and, and so I think having them go from being afraid of assessments and being tested because they felt like they were dumb to saying, I'm good, I'm smart, look at what I can do. Um, you know, like the, I was just reading an article about math anxiety. And, and so, for example, one of the math parts of the assessment would be an open-ended question. So we would have like the traditional two plus two equals what, but then we would also have towards the end, we would open it up slowly, slowly. We would open up these questions. And the, the final question was, write as many ways that you can uh, get to the number 10. You know, and there would be some kids that would fill up a whole back of a page of a paper going 11 minus 1, 12 minus 2, 13 minus 3. I mean, it was just so cool to see that and see these kids feeling like, yeah, I can do this. I can succeed. And that came from that work. I mean, 
um, it wasn't exclusive to the kids on the Navajo reservation, but that's who I was doing that work with. And, but I think also acknowledging, you know, the Navajo culture has a very strong, um, oral linguistic tradition. Um, and so being able to recognize that and honor that and, and listen to those stories was just amazing. That's, that's so awesome. I just, uh, um, I could listen to you talk about that forever. So I, I love this. This, it, <laughs> I don't know how much time we have, but I, as you can tell, I can probably talk about it for forever. Well, I'm, glad, <laughs> I'm glad you can because this is awesome. I'm just uh, um, enamored with, with our discussion here. Did, did your experiences working with the Navajo impact how you approach other work or your current work? And if so, how? Absolutely. I think that work laid the basis for me. That was fairly early in my career. When I did that work, I'm trying to think now, I had I had just recently gotten my master's degree. So I might have been in the classroom um, for about a year or two when I got that position. Um, and so it really opened my eyes later on as a teacher and later on as an administrator to really seeing the intelligence and giftedness in every student. And I mean every student. Um, seeing what is it that they're good at? Where, how are they gifted? Because they're gifted in something. And um, so, so what is it? And, and how can I tap into that? And how can I tap into that to bring out success and true success? You know, not just, oh, this kid got a good grade, but this kid now is going into hopefully their life feeling a little bit better about themselves, feeling like, like they can achieve some things that they didn't know they could. So it totally changed how I looked at kids. You know, it puts, it puts vocabulary to what I felt. You know, it put it, 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 it was something that I kind of knew in my heart, but it put something logical to it. And it gave me some tools to now I can take this into any school, any place that I work at. So, yeah, it profoundly changed um, my my experience working with with kids. Too cool. You can hear uh, the power of your experiences in, in your voice, and the way you reflect on it, which is awesome. The uh, I think that's awesome. Uh, you know, and, and so I'm kind of you've kind of touched on this already, but I want to go a little deeper into it. You know, I can hear that you, there are things that you miss about working with the Navajo. Can you tell me what you miss most about working with them? Oh, absolutely. Um, first of all, it's a beautiful culture. I think all cultures are beautiful. Um, and it was just an honor to, to get to know just a little bit of, of the Navajo culture. Um, it's a beautiful part of the world. Um, the the Navajo Reservation is just an amazing place. And I, before I forget, I want to talk about, I, I said, oh, the, the reason I'm at the ranch is because of my work at the Navajo Reservation. Um, so very quickly, um, I was living in Tucson at the time when I was working on the Navajo Reservation. And... Um, and I remember the very first time I went up to the Navajo Reservation and, and, I, and there was a little duplex that I would stay in there. And so after school, I would go to the duplex. And the very first night I was there, it was so quiet. All I could hear was the tick-tocking of the clock. Hmm. 
And I remember sitting there, um, just listening to the clock and hearing nothing else and then going out and seeing the stars and, and hearing the quiet and the occasional coyote howl. And years later, I found myself uh, pursuing that landscape because at first it drove me crazy <laughs> because I'd come from, you know, grew up in the Chicago area. I lived in a fairly big city. And when I went up there, it was just, it drove me crazy that it was so quiet. And um, but then I, I grew to crave that. And I think one of the reasons that we bought the ranch was um, to kind of tap into that experience that I have on the Navajo Reservation. Um, but back to the culture, you know, the, uh, positive stereotypes exist, just like negative stereotypes exist. Um, but they exist for a reason. Um, the things that I noticed about the Navajo culture is they have a profound love for their children. Um, even though there's problems, just like in any culture, there's serious problems of um, domestic abuse, for example, alcohol and drug dependencies. Um, there's limited social services on the res. You know, the recent uh, shutdown really affected that. Um, and so I was always very wary of being, you know, talking about stereotypes. I was wary of being the stereotypical white person, you know, coming into, quote unquote, save the Navajos from themselves and it's just a it's just a farce it's, it's a real hard place to stand it's, it's really easy to um, be inadvertently disrespectful but I was always treated kindly um, and I was uh, they were so patient with me <laughs> and what I had to learn and you know most of what I needed to learn was what not to say <laughs> um, and I just learned so much from that experience and I do miss the work that we did and I felt it was was really important not not just any not just on the Navajo reservation but anywhere um, the students are underrepresented in gifted programs which is everywhere unfortunately um, but you know it was just an amazing I mean it, it's an, an experience that I would have paid for right? <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> but uh, you know it was just a sweet wonderful challenging frustrating um, amazing experience that um, as you can tell, um, had a big place in my, my career. Most definitely can hear your, your heart. That's so cool. And I thank you so much for sharing. I, you know, what, what I want to do now is, is trans transition and uh, talk about your current position as chief learning discovery officer with the learning agency. Can you share a little bit about the organization and what you do? Sure. Um, I'll start with, uh, Ulrich Bozer, who is the author of learn better. He, uh, he wrote a book, uh, about um, the science of learning and basically how we can each become experts um, in a field or in whatever we want to study, and we can do it in a way that taps into what we know about cognition. Um, and he's contacted me out of the blue um, to help work on a grant project that he was working on, and I was doing some research and writing for him. And, um, you know, we just hit it off. We realized we were on the same page on so many things. So we uh, have started working together uh, more closely, and there's uh, just one member of the team. Um, and one of the current projects that we're that we're looking that we're working on is we're looking at different teaching strategies that teachers can use in the classroom. They've been researched, and they've been shown to improve the ability to learn. Um, there are techniques like spacing and metacognition and elaboration, and what we're doing is a video project where 
teachers from elementary to high school level are, I guess, experimenting with six different strategies in their classrooms. And so we have more than a dozen instructors, and they're working with various researchers to kind of fine-tune the implementation of those techniques in the classroom. And then the teachers and the researchers are going to then be sharing their reflections to share what they've learned about. Um, and and they're, we're going to share those videos with um, different learning environments across the country. Um, so they'll be produced and distributed as kind of an um, on-demand training course. And then in a series of blog posts, we're going to cover each of those strategies and share resources. And um, so the schools are working with, with us, the learning agency. They're working with uh, Dr. Stephen Chu of Stanford University, Dr. Regan Groon of the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, they're working with the learning scientists, which, by the way, uh, check out the learning scientists website. Um, I don't have it off the top of my head, but if you just Google the learning scientists, you'll see them, Dr. Megan uh, Sumeraki and um, Yana Weinstein. Amazing, great work on, on this topic. Um, and so we're putting that together. We've got classrooms in Memphis. We've got a classroom in Baton Rouge, Kenner, Louisiana. We've got... Um, classes, classrooms in Maine and Massachusetts. So uh, trying to bring in a wide variety of student and teacher experiences to the study. And, um, and we've just kind of started. Most of the teachers have been interviewed and uh, we're doing classroom observations and, um, and then teachers are reflecting every week or two and we'll have everything put together by the, um, by the fall of this year, fingers crossed. Um, so it's a lot of fun work. Plus, we do other other work, but that's the main, main, main project that that we're working on. And and that's actually how I found you because I was doing some research on differentiation in the classroom, and because that's part of what we're looking at is different techniques that this the teacher can do for the whole classroom, but it's going to tap into different students in the classroom. Um, so. Um, it's uh, it's really fun. It, it's great work. It's uh, it's kind of fun to be doing this type of work um, in a way that is true to my heart, which is always um, how can we support um, teachers and and parents in helping us um, recognize what what their kids are capable of doing. Excellent, excellent. Just uh, that's so cool. I can imagine that uh, you know um, that's just. Uh, is exciting work and, and is what you want to continue doing because it sounds like it kind of reignites what, uh, you know, what you want to do, um, which is um, incredible. So uh, if, uh, and by the way, the learning scientist and all the different links that uh, um, Elise has mentioned, I'll make sure those are in my show notes so that you'll be able to pick those up and uh, be able to go there, especially for those of you who are driving cars or something like that or sailing boats <laughs> while you're listening. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, so if, if someone wanted to con connect further with you or learn more about the Discover Projects, Elisa, um, and the learning agency, where would you send them? Well, the Discover Projects, um, they have a website that um, that I encourage people to check out. They, they, like I said, even though I did my work there uh, a few years ago, they're still active. They still work with parents and in, in, uh, districts. Um, so their website is uh, discover.arizona.edu. Um, the learning agency is um, 
the-learning-agency.com. And uh, we've been doing lots of really interesting work, and Ulrich is just a, a great guy. He actually has um, an online course on the Learning Agency website uh, where people can kind of take what we're studying and apply it to their own lives. So that's kind of fun, too. Um, and, and the phone number for the Learning Agency is 202-713-5854. Excellent. Excellent. So so before we go, last two questions. And what I'd like to ask you is this. If you were given the chance to talk with 100 brand new teachers who haven't started teaching yet, what advice would you give them? Well, I have two pieces of advice. I've done this because I've taught. Um, I've taught teacher education courses at the college level. And nice. <laughs> one of the things that I would say, and it's slightly jokey, but I think it'll, I think uh, most teachers who have been in the field for a while will get a chuckle and it's stay out of the teacher's lounge. Um, my experience and a lot of people's experiences as a teacher is um, unfortunately, there's a lot of negativity in, in the profession. Um, that kids don't care, that kids don't behave the way they're supposed to, that they're brats or that, um, you know, they won't sit down and shut up. And you have to stay away from those people. You have to really draw yourself to people who believe in the kids, who are idealistic about what teaching can do, because those are the people that are going to feed you energy and keep you positive because teaching is a tough profession. And we see this, we see this in how, uh, how few years people stay in the profession. Um, so hang out with the people who are positive and the people who are idealistic about what we can do for kids, because that idealism is true. It, it, it can, it can, you literally are changing lives. The second piece of advice that I would give would be do that exercise. If you could give your students a gift, uh, a personality trait or a skill, a life skill, what would it be? And and make sure you integrate that in along with the content. Um, you don't have to do it instead of the content. You can do it along with the content. So if you if one of your life skills that you would like to gift your students is resiliency, show them, teach them, model to them resiliency because um, that's how they're going to succeed, not because they know how to uh, simplify a quadratic expression. Um, they're going to succeed because they know how to simplify a quadratic expression and they know how to not give up when that becomes too tricky. They know that they can get through this. What incredible advice. I mean, it, um, just both aspects of what you're talking about are just, you know, um, just incredible. Being able to give them those gifts as well as, uh, you know, stay out of the teacher lounge, stay away from the negative people and, and only hang around the positive is uh, just powerful. And uh, here's my last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If given a chance to say thank you, who would it be and what would you say? Uh I can think of so many, but the ones that come to mind uh, immediately are my fourth, fifth, and sixth grade teachers, um, Mrs. Price, uh, Mr. Jackson, and Mr. Jeske. Um, I think I would thank them 
Paul for letting me be my weird little self in their <laughs> classroom. And um, they all let me do things different from what the rest of the class was doing. Mrs. Price let me make a pop-up book about Harold uh, in the Purple Crayon. Mr. Jackson let me, um, like I decided one day that we needed a newspaper uh, in the classroom and he let me just do that. <laughs> so I was the editor of the newspaper. And Miss Rajeski, she helped me through, um, you know, it was the first time that I started to struggle. I was starting to struggle with math and um, reading comprehension. And she, she just believed, believed in me. And they all clearly loved teaching and loved being with kids. And um, those are the teachers. I think when we think about teachers that make differences in our life, they're usually the ones that clearly loved teaching and challenged us. And they all three challenged me deeply. That's awesome. In a good way. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's so cool. And I love that, that they were uh, right there in a row. So that's, that's cool too. That's yeah. 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 I had a, I had a, I had a good run for a while there. I had a lot of good teachers, but those are the three that always come to mind. That's so cool. The, uh, well, uh, Lisa, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been awesome. Your, your, your passion and, and your heart for what, what you, the work that you did with the Navajo, as well as the work that you're doing now, it just has come shining through and I greatly appreciate you sharing it with me. They, and with us and uh, keep doing what you do and making a difference and enjoy that sailboat and that ranch and and uh, uh, and the ukulele that is so cool and uh, um, I'm disappointed I didn't hear any sea lions in the background but uh, maybe next time <laughs> <laughs> if we stay on long enough you'll hear some sea lions well I want to thank you Steve for for the work that you're doing and I think it's it's awesome and uh, the having resources like this for people who are interested in teaching and in education is something that I wish I'd had. So I appreciate you doing this and uh, spreading the love. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. <laughs> The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.